continuing on with the same action that we've seen Paul take now over the last couple of chapters in 2 Corinthians, Paul is once again here in chapter 11, picking things up again with having to deal with these false teachers that have crept into the church at Corinth in Paul's absence, and they've sort of been a bit of a, a disruption here. They've begun to alter the gospel. They've begun to add, you know, not take away from Jesus. They, they haven't said, oh no, Jesus is not the Messiah. They they proclaim that, but then they've added to the gospel. They they brought people back under the law, maybe an element of legalism. Maybe in, in Corinth, this, this uh, very sinful city, perhaps they've not had to deal with legalism, but more so licentiousness in a bit and just being free with their faith. And so they've brought in some corruption and Paul's having to deal with these false apostles. Now for these false apostles to kind of get, you know, the, the recognition or the acceptance from these people, they've had to kind of put down Paul. And in putting down Paul, discrediting him, they're seeking to elevate themselves, right? Put one person down so as to elevate yourself. So Paul comes along now in chapter one or chapter 11, verse one, and notice what he says, oh, that you'd bear with me in a little bit of folly. Because what Paul's having to do is kind of fight fire with fire now. As the uh, false apostles have been bragging in themselves, trying to puff themselves up, Paul's coming along now and he's kind of saying, well, if you want to puff yourself up, let me lay out some of my credentials, some of the things that are very obvious where the Lord has called me and, and used me. But notice Paul is not boasting in these things. What does he call it? He calls it folly. Because Paul says, oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna kind of go down that path that you're going down, but this is not boasting, this is folly. Because ultimately Paul understands that the only boasting or bragging we can do is in the Lord. That's why he says in chapter 10, verse 17, as we looked at last week, but he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. If anybody's gonna boast, let it be about the Lord. And ultimately, as we'll see, Paul moving in this direction of folly, he's doing so in a way where he's making it about the Lord. He might be sharing some things about his life, but he's sharing the weaknesses of himself so that again, God might be promoted and elevated more. The false apostles were looking to tear down Paul to elevate themselves. Paul is equally kind of putting himself down, but so as to elevate Christ. And this is his boasting, his way of, uh, of bragging about these things. So Paul's looking to kind of stir up the hearts of the people there in Corinth. But he moves in folly because notice what he says, he was jealous for them. He's jealous with a godly jealousy. And we're gonna be looking at three things here in our text here this morning. We're gonna see uh, Paul's jealousy over the church, verses one to six. We're gonna see his generosity for the church and then his warning to the church. So we're looking at this jealousy that Paul has for the church, and that can sound kind of odd to us because we oftentimes uh, link or you know, use synonymously jealousy with, with envy. Envy is not a very good thing, right? To be envious is something that's like, oh man, I want what they've got, or I wanna be the kind of person that they are. I'm not happy with myself, and so you're envious. And we sometimes use jealousy in the same way. So when we hear it biblically, we go, oh, that seems kind of odd. And when, when, when you hear God himself say in Exodus 20, verse five, that, that he is a jealous God, you kind of go, God, come on, you're better than that. You don't need to be like that. We think of God sometimes as like sulking in a corner, all like, you know, sad that I'm jealous and uh, I'm not getting the, the recognition I'm due or I'm not getting this and that. This is not the idea 
of godly jealousy. In fact, for God to say that he's a jealous God, he's not jealous of another person. He's not jealous of you, but rather he's jealous for you. Because God has your best interest at heart. God wants you to live a, a, an abundant life. And he knows that that abundant life, that blessed life comes as you live for him in close connection, as you live in that pure devotion to the Lord. When you let other things in your life that begin to detract you or get you away from the Lord, God becomes jealous for you because he knows that's not gonna be to your best. And God says, I've got the best for you. And I'm jealous for you because I want you to enjoy this life that I have for you. But if you're not gonna follow me in close connection or in devotion, you're gonna miss out. That's the jealousy of God. And Paul comes along now with that same jealousy over the church. He doesn't wanna see them missing out. He doesn't wanna see them being led astray. And failing to live in that abundant, blessed life that God has for them. It's how any husband would of course feel if some ex-con showed up, you know, and looking to grab the attention of, of his wife and lead the wife astray into a life of crime or something like that. You'd be going, oh, you're not, you're not gonna be jealous uh, for your wife in a sense of, oh, I'm feeling so left out. This guy comes along, he's got such charisma, he's got such a, uh, you know, past that I can't compete with. Yes, he's done jail time, but you know, I can't compete with that. You're not jealous over, over him. You're not jealous of him. You're jealous for your wife because you go, this is not gonna be to her good. This is gonna hurt her and I wanna protect her. I wanna bless her. I want her to experience the, the real kind of love that I have. And, and so you're jealous for your wife, not of another. That's what Paul is saying. In fact, he ties in this whole picture of, of marriage now with the church at Corinth and with their relationship to Christ. Paul, kind of as their spiritual father, he's betrothed the believers there, the church, to Christ. They've entered into this covenant relationship now to where they were, you know, to be for one another. And not only does he kind of view himself as this spiritual father of the church, but also as the best man of the bridegroom. He's kind of picturing himself now as the friend of the bridegroom whose role it was, was to go and call the bride and, and bring the bride to the bridegroom and to present her as a chaste virgin to the bridegroom. Interesting how in the Old Testament, Israel was seen as the wife of God. In the New Testament, the church is now seen as the bride of Christ. We're to be in this relationship with God, uh, with Jesus. That's this kind of covenantal commitment to where we have, have you know, given ourselves for, them, for him and for him alone. And so the job of the best man was to present the bride to the bridegroom. And if there was found out to be any kind of unfaithfulness, well, that bride would be set aside, cast aside, dismissed and, and shamed and oftentimes dismissed with grave consequences. If you know what I mean here, it was not a, a good thing. So there's a real concern on Paul's behalf, being led by this godly jealousy over the church and for the church in being able to present this Corinthian church to Christ as a pure bride. But there were some problems here. Look at verse three. But I fear, Paul says, I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your mind may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. 
For if he who comes preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. So notice this here. Paul is very worried that the bride-to-be, who was the believers at Corinth, have been flirting now with another and is dangerously close to being seduced into another gospel, being led by a different spirit. Notice these, this terminology that we, that we see here. Because these false apostles are coming in, preaching another Jesus. They're coming in a different spirit and they are giving out a different gospel. And, and this church that's to be the bride of Christ were being seduced. They were tempting, tempted to, to walk in this adulterous way, forsaking Jesus, being led astray by a different spirit and a different gospel. And there's a real concern that many have already drifted in unfaithfulness. So Paul says here, I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve, notice that there, speaking of Satan, and the serpent came in and deceived Eve by his craftiness. Catch that there, okay? By his craftiness. I want you to understand something that Satan, when he's coming against you, does not come in this embodiment of evil and blatant lies. We think, you know, I'll recognize Satan because he's going to be in a long black cape with horns and he's going to be carrying a pitchfork. I'll recognize Satan when he comes. I'll know who that is. Satan doesn't appear that way. In fact, we'll see that very clearly as we continue on this chapter this morning. But Satan comes in a way where he presents himself in a, a very crafty way. That's why Paul says he, he tempted Eve or deceived Eve by his craftiness. Satan is, is very crafty. He, he comes in a way where you might think, oh, this sounds really good. This presentation that's being given to me seems like this is spot on. Satan comes in a way where he's very crafty. In fact, look at the way that he came and tempted Eve right from the very beginning. Because we read here in Genesis chapter three, verse one to five. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? So notice that first of all, the serpent was more cunning, there's that word. And there's like what Paul says here now in 2 Corinthians 11, that word cunning means that he is crafty or it also means he is subtle. So he comes in a very subtle way he, he comes in a way where you go, is this true? Is this right? Is this good? It might seem like it. It might look like it is, but it's very subtle. He's very deceptive. And you need to be aware because he doesn't come in the embodiment of evil. He comes in a way that might look very legitimate and very true, but that's his tactic. Understand that. These Corinthians may have thought that they were on the right path here, that they're following the right gospel, but clearly Paul points out, no, they've been led astray. And they might go, well, it's not really that far astray. It might just be one or two small little things that are a little bit off, but understand something. If a plane is taken off from YVR heading to Hawaii and it's 
off by just one degree, that might not matter much as they're flying over Vancouver, but they're not gonna end up in Hawaii. <laughs> they're gonna, I don't know where they're gonna end up. Maybe Antarctica, I don't know. Floating on the Pacific Ocean somewhere. I don't know where they're gonna end up, but it's not gonna be Hawaii. And what started off as just a very small difference amounts to a big problem over the course. And this church here was falling prey to the temptations of the enemy. He was coming in in a very crafty and cunning way. Look at how Satan tempted Eve here. There's three things that we see in, in Genesis 3, continuing on. It, it says in verse 2, And the woman said to the serpent, Well, we may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. Notice that here. Here's the first thing that Satan comes and he does. Is he, or sorry, I got ahead of myself here. Let's go back here. All right. Um, has God indeed said? That's the first thing we're gonna look at. What does Satan do? He questioned God's word. Questioned God's word. So he comes along and he brings doubt into your mind. Is that really what God said? Is that really the right interpretation? Can you really trust the Bible? Has God really said these things? And he questions God's word. And he caused Eve to begin to question these things herself. And, and then Eve had a, a bit of a problem because now she begins to add a bit to the word of God where, where she says, oh, well, God says you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it. Well, first of all, God never said you can't touch it. He said, of all the fruit of the trees of the garden, you may eat, but of the tree of the, in the garden of uh, knowledge of good and evil, do not eat of it lest you, sh lest you die. But now she adds to it. Maybe Satan came along and said, look it, you can touch it. You're not gonna die. So what does he do? He begins to contradict God's word right here by saying, you will not surely die. So not only does he question God's word, but he contradicts God's word. Number two, and then number three, he corrupts God's word. He says, you know what? God knows that if you eat of this tree, you're going to be like him. He corrupted God's word. God's trying to keep you from something greater. God doesn't want you to experience the fullness of what he has. He doesn't want you to be like him. He's trying to hold you back. He corrupts God's word. He begins to, to change it. He begins to, to present something different to you. Oh, you're just gonna be like God, knowing good and evil. Satan comes at us in much the same way, where he causes you to question God's word. He begins with a, a little subtle lie that contradicts God's word that might seem accurate and true, but again, if it's off by just a little bit, it's off, and we need to reject that. He corrupts God's word, he changes it. See, Paul said to the church here at Corinth, let me go back to, to here, he says, I fear, let's sum out, the serpent deceived Eve already. And he's wanting them, notice this, to remain in the simplicity that is in Christ. I want you to catch that here. Because the gospel is really quite simple. The good news of Jesus is really quite simple. Following Jesus is really quite simple, but it's been the method of false 
teachers, false apostles. It's been the, the method of cultists and the like to take you away from the simplicity that we enjoy in Jesus Christ. They want to muddy the truth. They want to make things complicated or confusing, make you question and, and contradict God's word. They say that you don't really know what's right or wrong and you need to listen to them. You need to follow what they're going to say. They're going to be the guide for you that's going to illuminate all this truth to you. Listen, if you are dependent on another for salvation apart from Jesus, then you've got a different gospel. If somebody says, you need to rely upon me, you need to follow me, and I will lead you into the right truth, then you can right away know that's not the truth. I'm going to dismiss that. I'm thankful that the gospel is not confusing. It's not complicated. You don't need special glasses to decipher it. You don't need someone to tell you what it means. God knew that he would be working with people like me, so he kept it as simple as possible here. <laughs> There's really no way that you can mess it up if you're just simply following what the word of God says. Amen. The gospel is very plain. And, and simple. In fact, we read in Romans chapter 10, verse 8. But what does it say? Well, the word is near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith, which we preach that if you confess with your mouth, the Lord Jesus, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's simple. It doesn't add a lot of fine print to that. Confess in your mouth, believe in your heart, God's raised from the dead, you'll be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Amen. Have you called upon the name of the Lord? Is he your means? for forgiveness of sins and righteousness. It's simple. Have you turned to Jesus? Have you put your trust in Jesus? Oh, there's no hoops that you need to jump through. There's no things, course that you need to take. There's nothing that you need to fulfill to be saved. You just simply need to call out to Jesus as your Lord and Savior and put your faith in him. It's really quite simple. The gospel is beautifully simple. It's wonderfully powerful. It's the means by which spiritually dead people are made alive. Paul would say in Romans 10, or sorry, Romans 1, 16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Charles Spurgeon was asked one time if he can sum up the gospel. And he said, I can sum up the gospel in four words. Jesus died for me. That's it. We recognize that Jesus paid the penalty for my sin. He died on a cross for me to be forgiven and to have relationship with him, to have life in him. It's simple. And it's quite alarming how the more educated some people get, the more prone they are to move away from the simplicity that we enjoy in Christ. Listen, we don't need to add to what we have. We don't need to rethink it. We don't need to rediscover some hidden truth. We need to simply remain in the pure, unadulterated word of God that is simple for us here. The gospel that's contained right here. A wise old pastor once gave some good advice to his young apprentice, and he said this, preach a full gospel, 
and nothing, Christ and nothing less. Preach a plain gospel, Christ and nothing more, and preach a pure gospel, Christ and nothing else. Because that's what was happening in the churches. Paul laid out in verse four, that there were those coming in, preaching another Jesus by another spirit, giving another gospel. And people need to be on guard from those things. Satan will always come with something that looks good, something that looks relatively true. Satan knows that this world needs Jesus. So what does he do? He looks to counterfeit the solution and he gives a substitute. He gives and offers a different Jesus, another gospel that might make you think, I'm good, I'm safe here. But it's a deception and it's a lie and you will not find salvation in that no matter how good it looks or how close to the truth it might be. If it's another Jesus, it is wrong. He's very sly about this, my friends. There have been many Jesuses preached other than the one of the Bible. Many Jesuses proclaimed other than what we see in the word of God. Yet the Bible tells us who Jesus is, that he is not just the son of God, but that he is fully God. And many will try to contradict that. It says in John 1, verse 1 to 2, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God, not was a God, but the word was God. And he was in the beginning with God. Verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the father, full of grace and truth. Jesus would say in John 10, verse 30, I and my father are one. And yet we see many people trying to pervert that truth. The Jehovah's Witnesses, for instance, teach that Jesus is actually the uh, Archangel Michael that he's a created being. You know, when we moved out to South Langley, a little bit more in, in the country, I thought, oh man, this is a place that I'm sure Jehovah's Witnesses don't wanna venture out to. There's not many places. And for the first years, we haven't seen them. And all of a sudden, in the last couple of weeks, I've had like three visits from Jehovah's Witnesses. And yesterday they came along, I'm doing, I'm doing some yard work. And I'm like, don't engage, Brent, don't engage. Just take what they got and send them on their way. And guess what? I engaged, I couldn't help myself. <laughs> <laughs> and yet, you know, they come across trying to line up with everything you're saying. Oh, yes, we believe that. But yet it's salvation by faith in Christ. Oh, yeah, and deeds. And they try to add to it. The moment that you, you, might, you might proclaim Jesus, but if it's Jesus and, you've got a different gospel. I asked him, I said, if I were to get stabbed in my back right now and I'm bleeding out and I need to know that I'm going to heaven, what would you say that I could go to heaven? And they're like, well, kind of be too late <laughs> because they put the emphasis on their works, not on Jesus alone. I said, is Jesus not enough to save me? Yes, Jesus, faith in Jesus, yes. And, and they wanna keep going to the works. And then finally as we're wrapped up, I said, well, who is Jesus to you? Is he God? Oh, no, absolutely not. And they were quick to jump on that one. I said, yeah, no, we're, we're done here. So, but that's the thing. The Mormons believe that Jesus was the firstborn uh, spirit child, that he was actually the brother of Lucifer. And so these two, Lucifer and Jesus came, they will say, presented their plan of salvation before God. And God, of course, chose Jesus' plan of salvation, which made Lucifer very angry. And so a sibling rivalry was created from then on now. 
That's what we see happening in the world. But Jesus was again a created being. A man by the name of Jose Luis de Jesus Miranda several years ago showed up in South Florida proclaiming to be the second coming of Christ. And yet this man was a former heroin addict who was divorced from his wife and remarried. That seems a little bit different than the Jesus of the Bible. And yet what blows my mind is that all of these cults and even this individual, Jose Luis de Jesus Miranda, had a huge following. People bought the lie. The hook was baited and they bit in to the temptation and to the deception. And it blows my mind that people follow along with these things. I mean, we're talking about some of the big cults, yet let alone what goes on in, in churches today oftentimes that have moved away from the word of God. As clearly false as many of these are, the truly astonishing thing is that these people were giving an ear to it. Paul says at the end of verse four that you, well, that you may well put up with it. These people were kind of putting up with it. They weren't rebuking. They weren't having enough understanding to say, wait a second, that doesn't line up with Scripture. It doesn't line up with what we've been given as the Word of God. Paul said in Galatians 1, verse 6 to 8, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be a curse. That's big. That's huge. That's strong language that Paul uses here. But he says, if you turn away from the truth that we have and the simplicity of the gospel, let him be accursed. Jesus showed that in, in Matthew 24 that a mark of the end times, the end days, is going to be that of deception. And we see it all around us today. And it agrees with that so many Christians follow right after things that are clearly outside of God's word. If you're not going to be faithful to stand upon the firm foundation of God's word, then you can expect to fall. If you don't stand for something, you're gonna fall for everything. Now, I don't care what kind of experiences people might say they have. Because you can listen to people that sound very spiritual, that sound like, oh, these guys are really close to God. I mean, I heard one, one guy say, I was awoke in the middle of the night, my bed was shaking, just rattling. And I looked up and I saw this big person standing there is an angel. It's the archangel Michael. And he began to share with me and, he, and, and they, they give these words and, and right away people are like, oh, I've never seen an angel before, but this guy seeing angels, he must be close to God. He must be sharing the truth. And there are people that just follow right along without checking it to go, that seems kind of odd. That seems kind of weird. See, we don't need visitations we don't need some extra revelation. God's given us all we need right here in the word of God. Amen. And everything that you might hear, no matter how great the experience somebody might have, whatever kind of dream or vision they've had, whatever revelation they may have received, if it's not lining up with the word of God, you don't accept it. And in fact, if somebody comes to you and they got a word for you, and yes, the Lord can speak to people, I'm not wanting to dismiss that, but you need to take that and go, okay, thank you. And I'm going to see how God confirms that here through his word. 
And if he doesn't confirm it through his word, then just put it in the trash bin. It's always going to line up with God's word here. Paul says in verse 5, For I consider that I am not at all inferior to the most eminent of apostles. Now, Paul does something interesting here. He kind of makes a compound word here when he says these most eminent apostles. He uses this Greek word, hyper, and lean. He kind of connects these two together, makes the word hyperlean. Hyperlean for these false apostles. And what he's saying is, you guys have made yourself to be these like super apostles. You've puffed yourselves up so much. You've shown up, you know, you've flown into town with these long capes. You've flexed your muscles. You guys are like these super apostles. Oh boy, everybody listen to these guys, right? And yet Paul says, I'm not at all inferior to any of you guys. No matter how much you've puffed yourselves up and bragged in all that you are, I'm not at all inferior to you guys. Even though you know, Paul's untrained in speech, it says, yet I'm not in knowledge, but we've been thoroughly manifested among you in all things. They love to see themselves as the super apostles, but Paul says that he's no problem showing his superiority or his genuineness over these most eminent apostles. And he's using this very sarcastically kind of tongue in cheek here. And again, they're looking to put down Paul. Paul is okay with that. He's ready to put himself down. Notice, he says, even though I'm untrained in speech. Here's another Greek word for you. The Greek word for untrained is idiotis. Idiotis. You can tell somebody, I know Greek, and you are an idiotis. Um, and this is the way that they're, they're saying, Paul, you can't trust Paul. You can't listen to him. He's just an idiot. The guy's not a real legitimate apostle. No, you got to listen to us. We're going to lead you into all truth here. And they're putting Paul down. But Paul was okay with this. He's saying, this doesn't make me any less than. In fact, all it does is it reveals the greatness of God when he works through people like me of untrained speech. In fact, I love what Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1 to 5. And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and a power that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Amen. See, whatever Paul may have lacked in in performance or oratory skill or appearance, he made up for in knowledge. Because Paul had a true and authentic relationship with the real Jesus, something that these false apostles could not say they've had. Question is not, what do you know? The question is, do you know Jesus? There was a pastor that was celebrating his 50th anniversary of ministry. And so for this occasion, they're gonna throw a big party for him. This pastor was friends with the actor Richard Burton and he invited Richard Burton to come and attend the celebration and to read out his favorite passage, the 23rd Psalm. Richard Burton agreed to do so on, on account that the pastor would follow him afterwards and also share the 23rd Psalm. So the time in the party came for Richard Burton and he stood up and proclaimed this popular psalm with such 
oratorical mastery that the congregation immediately applauded and just overwhelmed at this masterpiece. And then this humble pastor stood up and he began to recite from heart this beloved psalm. After he'd finished his not nearly so professional recitation, the congregation was in awe and some moved to tears. Someone in the front pew sitting with Richard Burton leaned over and asked him, why did people loudly applaud you and yet were silently moved by this pastor? By which Richard Burton said, well, I may know the psalm, but my friend knows the shepherd. And that's all the difference in the world. There are a lot of people that can fake it, that can have a knowledge, but the question is, are you in relationship with our Savior? with Jesus, with the true shepherd? Are you following him, listening to him? Are you abiding in him? See, Paul wasn't so concerned with trying to impress him with smooth speech or entertainment because his focus was on delivering the truth of God's word, plain and simple. The simplicity that we have in Christ. And that brings great comfort to me because in a day where pastors can, can be very caught up in trying to entertain or be flashy. I just really need to be faithful to preach God's word. I mean, I, I may not even be the, the pastor that you prefer. I may not be witty or I may not be eloquent in speech or have personality or take care of personal hygiene. But if those are the things that you're trusting in or relying on, then you're looking at the wrong things. You're missing it. Because it's about the word of God being taught and growing closer to the Lord and growing up in the Lord that really matters. And it's the word of God that's gonna do it. Not some person giving great stories or some oratory performance. It's about seeing what the word of God says to us. So Paul's jealous over the church. He's desiring to see them brought before Christ in purity, in, in solid devotion where they haven't drifted. But then we also see the generosity for the church that Paul has. Look at verse seven with me. He says, did I commit sin in humbling myself that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel of God to you free of charge? I robbed other churches taking wages from them to minister to you. And when I was present with you and in need, I was a burden to no one for what I lacked, the brethren who came from Macedonia supplied. And in everything I kept myself from being burdensome to you. And so I will keep myself. So some of these false apostles now were challenging Paul's legitimacy as an apostle because he didn't take support from the church at Corinth. They saw that he was less than, that he wasn't deserving of it and he didn't receive that from them. But again, Paul did this all as an example of laying down one's rights for the betterment of others. He, he says, I didn't wanna be a burden to you. I didn't ask this because I wanted you simply to hear the gospel, to not think that I'm there for selfish motives or personal gain. I want you to hear the gospel without any kind of distraction. I don't want it to be about any kind of support. I want you just to hear the truth. And so Paul was willing to lay these things down. Listen, the measure of success in God's service is never weighed by the size of your house, the car that you drive, or the clothes that you wear. In fact, oftentimes, service to God will require a forsaking of those things. In fact, simply being a follower of Christ at times means that you are gonna live more without than you do with. But that is no measure of your success or the amount that God loves you. God sometimes brings us through seasons where he's doing a work either in you 
or through you and is allowing you to experience those things again for the betterment of others or the, the growth of yourself. Here's the deal, guys. We're not relying upon this world for our rewards. We're waiting for the next world for our rewards. It's not this world that we're living for or that we're trying to find comfort and contentment in. We know that's already been provided for us in and through Jesus Christ. And there's a great reward awaiting us. That's what we are looking forward to. So Paul didn't receive support from the believers here. There were times where, as he says, he received from the Macedonian um, churches, the church in Philippi, for instance, that he administered to previously supported him at times. Philippians 4.15 talks about the gift that they gave to Paul. And so other churches were there to be of help to me. He says in verse, uh, in verse eight that I robbed other churches. And again, that's not Paul saying, listen, man, I had to really, I had to break in and take stuff that wasn't mine. That's not Paul saying I robbed other churches. He's using this as a hyperbole, an exaggerated expression to show that, man, he didn't take from the Corinthians, but he received from other churches that he wasn't even at the time ministering to. They supplied his need. But again, it's the Lord that was supporting him and providing for him and meeting every one of his needs. Paul went to Corinth and he was a tent maker. He worked on the side and he received supplemental support from other churches when, when needed. Verse 10 says, as the truth of Christ is in me, no one shall stop me from this boasting in the regions of Achaia. Why? Because I do not love you, God knows. So Paul would continue to boast in the fact that he was more concerned for the church than for himself. And it was all motivated by love for them. So we've seen Paul's jealousy over the church, his generosity for the church. And now we look at his warning to the church. Look at verse 12. But what I do, I will also continue to do that I may cut off the opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in things of which they boast. So Paul's not gonna back down and trying to expose these selfish and false leaders, these false apostles that have come into the church, if they're gonna be a detriment to the growth of the church, and they were in leading people astray and leading people away from the truth of who Jesus is in the gospel, and Paul says, I gotta deal with it. If you find out that you have cancer, you don't sit back and take a, a patient approach and go, well, we'll just see how this plays out. Maybe it'll clear itself up. No, you do whatever you can to eradicate that cancer so that it doesn't grow. You do everything you can to stop that in its tracks and to eradicate it. You don't sit back and just see how it's gonna play out. And so Paul is going, these false apostles are being a, a cancer in the church. They're corrupting the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul says, and it needs to be eradicated. There are times where you need to expose the falsehoods and the lies. Paul says in Ephesians 5.11, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. And Paul is doing just that here. He says in verse 13, for such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it's no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. Now remember, it's wrong to be attracted to or gravitate to people or, or follow things based on the externals. Because again, that's Satan's strategy. That's his tactic. 
Satan knows he's got nothing internally worthwhile to offer you. So he packages it in a very attractive way. But it's all falsehood, deceptions, and lies. It might look good, but there's nothing profitable in it. He knows there's nothing internally that he can offer you that's going to be better than what we have in Jesus. So he seeks to come across in a very deceptive way. And that's what the false apostles did because they followed their master, Satan. They were transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. They would say things that seemed to line up, but then would add things or detract from the gospel. They would come into church of Corinth and say, oh yeah, you can have Jesus, but you've also, you've either got to, you know, follow the law or maybe they, they expressed that you could just kind of live your your best life now, you could just go ahead and entertain sin and live in a very licentious way. So the gospel got changed either by adding legalism or by adding licentiousness. And remember, Corinth was a very sinful city. So these false teachers were coming in saying, you can have Jesus, but Jesus and. And they sounded good. They seemed like apostles of Christ, but it was all a facade all the masquerade because Satan masquerades himself even as an angel of light. Now, when I hear people, stories of, man, I, I went into this trance where I, I, I stopped breathing on the operating table and I saw a bright light. I'm like, mm. let's hope it's the right light. Because Satan can masquerade himself, transform himself into an angel of light. Of light, And so it's no big deal if his ministers are doing the same because they're following not Jesus, but they're following Satan. And they appear as ministers of righteousness where you think, man, I'm gonna really gain from these people. But in the end, there's nothing that you gain from. They have nothing to offer you if it's apart from the good news of Jesus Christ. And their end is gonna be the same now. It's gonna be according to their works. What is that? Well, they're offering up a false gospel that cannot save, that's gonna lead people to their doom. And that's gonna be their inevitable end as well. May we be those that are walking in discernment, understanding how crafty the enemy can be, how subtle he can bring about a little lie that you might think no big deal but if I were to make a big pan of brownies and in that mix, I add just a tablespoon of dog poo. How many of you are gonna go, it's all right, it's just a little bit. The majority of it is good brownie mix, but there's just a small amount of dog poo. How many of you are gonna eat that? I hope nobody. Please tell me, please tell me nobody. But yet we do that so often where we go, you know what, they're mostly right. Oh, there might be a little bit of error, but, but they're ministers of righteousness. No, if there's error, they're not, they're masquerading as ministers of righteousness, but they're following the father of lies, Satan. Have nothing to do with it. Be discerning, stand solid in the truth and the simplicity of the gospel that's found for us right here in God's word. We don't need nothing more. We need nothing less. 
This is it for us. And let's stand strong in it.